is Thursday, and we're at the fifth portion of Parsha Shalach, and the Parsha kind of takes a turn. I mean, it's been very dramatic. We've had the cloak and dagger spies. We've had heresy, blasphemy, mutiny, all kinds, heroism, all kinds of things going on. And now the Torah shifts towards what seems to be uh, very specific laws regarding the sacrifices. We talked a little bit about it yesterday, and that's where we pick up today. Talking about when the Jewish people will come into the land of Israel and they'll offer sacrifices, those sacrifices have to come along with a meal offering, a flour that has oil in it, as well as wine. We talked about it a little yesterday, that these two aspects, the the that which is burnt on the altar represents earth going to heaven, raising up the earthly and dedicating it for a higher purpose, the yearning for the divine, which was similar to what on the deeper subliminal level the spies were about, and the nisachim, the wine libations, which went downward, they were not burnt up, but rather filtered downward represents a concept of bringing heaven down to earth, the peace that the spies were missing, that it's not just about escaping to heaven, but rather purpose of Torah and mitzvahs, indeed the creation of the world itself, is to bring heaven down to earth. Very interesting, the uh, Gemara says that someone who reads the Shema, but does not put on tefillin, is like a person who brings a sacrifice without offering the libations, the nisachim, the wine pouring. And at first glance, it seems very unusual to make this type of a comparison, right? Reading of the Shema is compared to the sacrifice and putting on the tefillin is compared to the libations. Why? But based on what is explained in Hasidus and Torah Or, and as explained by the Rebbe as well, there is very clear connection because when a person reads the Shema, that is going into a state of meditation that is um, bringing earth to heaven. You're, you're elevating yourself to a higher a plane of thought, state of consciousness. The putting on a tefillin is a physical act. And so a person who says, well, I don't need the physical acts. I'm a Jew in my heart or a cerebral Jew, a Jew from the uh, Department of Jewish Studies. But the mitzvahs are the physical things. That's not for me. That's what the Talmud is saying. That's like offering the sacrifice, which is the elevation, without the libations, without bringing it down to earth, without bringing it into the physical world. So that's a big, big point of the Parsha is, is um, this idea of, of God wanting us to be in the nitty gritty of this world with all the challenges that that involves and bringing sanctity there. Let us begin verse 8 of today's portion. If you will do, ben bakar, a young bull, a burnt offering or sacrifice, expressing a vow or for a peace offering for the Lord. So at least various types of sacrifices. So yesterday we learned about the smaller animals. So basically the way it works is if you had to make a graph, the smaller animal that is brought comes with a smaller portion of meal offering and a smaller portion of wine libation. And the larger animal comes with a bigger meal offering and a larger amount of wine. And so there are three categories, the smallest, the middle, and the largest. So today we're learning about the young bull. What is the amount? The Torah is going to give us the amount. It's going to be three-tenths fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. 
And how much is the wine? Verse 10 says that the wine that is brought with the young bull is a half a hin. And Rashi points out, when it says in the verse, a fire offering, it is not talking about the wine. It's talking about the flour and the oil because the wine is not placed upon the fire, as we've explained. This is what you should do. Verse 11 tells us that each and every animal that is brought as a sacrifice requires these particular, um, I'm sorry, verse 12 tells us that each and every animal requires it. Each one, not just one for a bunch or many for one. And Rashi teaches us in verse 11 that when the Torah talks about an aisle, an ayil, which in English is a ram, when is it considered a ram? When is it given that name? From the A, ben yud gimel chodesh v'yoyim From 13 months old and above, then it is considered a ram and has these amounts designated for it. Verse 13, kolezo yasekacha, all native-born Jews shall do so. And verse 14 says the same thing. If there is a convert throughout your generations, they also shall do it in the same way. There is one law for all of us as well as for the gear, the, the convert. There is no separate different law for the gear. And it's for our research department to figure out why in this case would there be a question whether the convert should do it in a different way. And we saw that similar last week when we talked about the Pesach Sheni, the second offering, that there was a reason you might think that a convert would do it differently, perhaps bringing the sacrifice or as soon as he becomes a convert. Um, so for our research department to find out why is there here, would you think that there would be some kind of a difference? And finally, the last verse, Torah Achas, one Torah, one Mishpat that shall be for you and for the convert that dwells with you. That concludes today's Parsha. I'm going to continue on to next, to tomorrow's Parsha, since it's rather short today, and will give us a head start into tomorrow. Now, the next section deals with a law called Challah. Now, we think of Challah as a beautiful bread that we eat on Shabbos. But in the mitzvahs and then in the Torah, challah refers specifically to the portion that you remove from the dough and give to the Kohen. And this is what this Parsha is about. And we'll, think, we'll, we'll see what this, how this relates also to the story of the spies. God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Jewish people and say to them, when you come into the land that I'm going to bring you there. Now, Rashi points out something very interesting. This, this phrase, when you arrive in the land, we have a similar phrase throughout the Torah. We even have a parsha towards the end of Deuteronomy called Ki Tavo, when you will arrive, when you arrive in the land. And um, we have this again and again in the Torah, either Ki Savo, which is in the singular, or Ki Savo U when in the plural. And here is the only place where it's stated a little bit differently. It's very subtle. And in the English, um, I don't know if there's any, in this translation, I don't know if there's any difference. When you arrive, bivoachem, the Hebrew is bivoachem, you could say upon your arrival, whereas the other phrases that is typically used, kisavo, could be translated as when, when you will arrive. So what is the difference? The difference Rashi explains as follows. Whenever the Torah says that a certain law is going to come into effect, 
when you enter the land of Israel, what the Torah really means is not the minute you walk past border control at Ben Gurion, but rather it's talking about when the Jews are first coming into the land of Israel from the desert, when they are settled in the land, when they've conquered the land and they've settled the land, that's when those mitzvahs are going to kick in and become obligatory. So the word ki savo, when you arrive, that means in the Torah's parlance, not when you step into the place, but when you actually have settled there. And in fact, that took 14 years. And so, for example, we learned about the laws of sabbatical um, a month ago or so. That only, um, that only comes into effect once the Jewish people have settled in the land after the 14 years. That's when the sabbatical years begin to be counted. How do we know this? We know this because in the one of the times where it uses this expression, ki tavo, when you arrive, it spells out when you will conquer and inherit the land and divide up the land. So this is very important. And because it uses the same expression, ki tavo, again and again, we are able to derive from that one place where it specifies that it, it refers to after there's been a settlement and a division. In this verse, the only time in the Torah where it uses a different expression to express the Jewish people's arrival in the land of Israel, bivoachem, upon your arrival. And that tells us that the mitzvah of challah, which we're about to learn, is different than all the other mitzvahs connected to the land in that it must be observed as soon as the Jewish people enter the land. It doesn't wait until the Jewish people have conquered and settled the land. This is what Rashi tells us in this Rashi, Rashi over here. Now, what is the law itself? Verse 19. It'll be when you eat from the bread of the land. You shall set aside a gift for the Lord. The first is at the beginning, like Genesis, Bereshis, at the beginning, the first of your dough, you shall separate chala, you translate that here as a loaf, tarimu truma, kitrumas goiden, it shall be like the gift of the threshing floor, kain tarimus oisa, so shall you separate it. So, in short, you make your batch of dough, you take off one piece of it, and you give that to the coin. I'll jump to the chase, which is how this is observed today. Today, we don't give it to the Kohen because um, there's purity and impurity is an issue. Um, the temple is no longer standing. And so we take it and we're not allowed to use it. It's sanctified, but we can't give it to the Kohen. And so it is burnt. And the idea behind this of taking a first portion of your, of your bread is to remind us that our bread comes from God. And this is why this portion is being taught over here, and also why it's as soon as the Jewish people come into the land of Israel. What was the claim of the spies? The claim of the spies, as we learned, is that once the Jewish people go into the land of Israel and all the miracles that they've been seeing in uh, Egypt when they were taken out and in the desert, as soon as they come into a regular land and they're living like normal people, the land the earthliness, the materialism of it is going to consume them and they're going to lose their spiritual consciousness. So here, or for example, in the desert, they're getting manna. It's very clear. Where, do, where is your bread coming from? It's coming from God. But once you go into the land of Israel and you're going to be 
plowing and you're going to be sowing and you're going to say, who made this bread? I made this bread, my effort, my genius. I'm such a great farmer. I made such great bread. And you forget what is the source of it. And so the Torah tells you there's a mitzvah to remind you that even though you put the work in to make that bread, the first portion, give it to God. That's the reminder of where this really comes from. Now, what does the Torah mean when it says, as in the case of the gift of the threshing floor? Rashi tells us that basically there is no set amount for how much you have to give. Torah doesn't say how, how big this challah has to be. And the way the Torah expresses that is by saying that it's like the gift of the threshing floor. What is, how does that help us? Okay, so Rashi tells there's two gifts that are given to the coin. One is given by the Israelites to the coin, a portion of their produce to the coin. That's called truma. The other is the gift that the Levite gives to the Kohen. The Levites get a tithing from the Israelites, and then they take a tenth of what they got from the Israelites, and they give it to the Kohen. So the difference between these two, what the Israelites give to the Kohen versus what the Levites give to the Kohen is that the Israelites give to the Kohen is without any amount specified in the Torah. Torah just says, give something to the coin. But what the Levites have to give is specified. So by calling it the gift of the threshing floor, which refers to the truma, not to the tithing of the Levites, Torah is saying, this challah, not saying how much you have to give. It's at your discretion. This is what Rashi says over here. However, says Rashi, the sages, even though the Torah doesn't give an amount, the sages, the rabbis, they gave an amount. And what did they say? How much is it? For somebody who is a householder, meaning not a baker, he's not, not making bread professionally, he's making bread for his own household, he has to give, or she has to give, 124th of the dough as the challah. For the baker, on the other hand, who does this professionally, he only has to give 148th. So we'll pause here and I'll just say one last thing, which is practically speaking, how much dough do you have to make to be required to do this mitzvah? What if you're making a very small batch of dough? And the reason that that's significant is that if you, that there's a, a bracha, a blessing that is said when you take, when you separate the dough from the challah. And if you're not required to do a mitzvah, you're not supposed to say the blessing because the blessing said, bless you, God, who commanded us. And if it's a situation where you're not really commanded, it may be a nice thing to do, but it's not a commandment. You couldn't say God's name, blessed are you, Lord our God. You'd be actually taking the name of God in vain. So you have to make sure you have enough dough to actually be required. So it's uh, two and between two and two thirds and four and two thirds quarts because there's to, to figure out exactly how much is an Omer is complicated and there's different opinions. But if you have more than four, or if you have four and two thirds quarts or more of, of dough, you're certainly required to give the challah and you would say the blessing. If it's less than that, speak to your local rabbi and ask him what is the, or <laughs> ask him what is the, uh, actually better to speak to your Rebetzin, local Rebetzin, because they're more likely to know these laws uh, than the man that's stereotyping, but we do that from time to time. So that concludes our study for today, and we'll we will pick it up again tomorrow 
I'm continuing in Shishi.